This is your profanity warning. Your warning that bad words are about to be said in the following podcast. If there are children in the room, in the house, or indeed within a five-mile radius, please send them away. This podcast is not for us. Is that good? Yeah, it was great. That was perfect. Okay. Okay. The riots began because the stores could not meet the demands of Sutter Kane's novel, In the Mouth of Madness. Kane disappeared two months ago without a trace. I'm the guy that writes horror books. You can forget about Stephen King. Kane outsells them all. I need to know if he's alive or dead, and I need that book. It's a setup. It's a setup. I just have to work out how it's set up. Kane's writing has been known to have an effect on his readers. This is a map. This whole thing has been staged. You just get out. This is not reality. It's all happening for real, Trent. Before we begin, a quick announcement. Our class on horror tropes in 20th century literature has been cancelled due to the fact that several students have reported feeling lightheaded after reading some of the assigned texts. But don't worry, kids. It only seems to affect our, quote, less stable students. For the rest of you, welcome to Scare University, or as we like to call it, Scare You. I'm Bradford Lorick. And I'm Eric Winnick, and Scare You is still a podcast about horror films told from several points of view. Now, of course, we call this podcast Scare You because one of us is going back to school today, as it were, to learn something new. And this frothing lunatic will be experiencing a horror film he hasn't seen yet. As assigned by a true horror aficionado, you. Joining us today to discuss the 1995 film In the Mouth of Madness, all the way from London, England, is the one and only Mary Wilde. Hey, Mary. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me. It's a delight to be here. Hi, Mary. It's good to have you. Uh, Mary is the creator of the Projections Lecture Series at the Freud Museum, London, Uh, She applies psychoanalysis to film interpretation. She co-hosts the Projections podcast, and she contributes to the Evolution of Horror podcast. And if I may say so, she is an excellent lecturer. Well, thank you so much. That's a very kind introduction. (laughs) (laughs) So how the heck are you, Mary Wilde? And what have you been up to since our lovely dinner in Hell's Kitchen? 
I've been doing really well. It was such a pleasure to meet both of you in New York City. I was just so, I felt so lucky to finally be able to speak to you in person. And we had some fantastic pizza. And then we went to that yes. wonderful bar that you recommended. And it was the such West a blast. The West Bank Cafe, yeah. The, the West yeah. Bank Cafe. And I've since recommended that place to my sister and her awesome. friends. Uh, so yeah, I've been doing well. It's been a good trip back. And now I'm back in the swing of things working as usual. And I understand that you have a book coming out relatively soon. Yes, that's right. I'm writing a book with Routledge on psychoanalysis and horror cinema. So that's right up your listeners street. It yep. should be of interest to the people who tune into your podcast. And us. Absolutely. And I said relatively soon, but is, is it relatively soon or are we talking next year? In my mind, it feels like it's right around the corner <laughs> just <Yeah>. because it <laughs> seems like an impossible task to write this thing in time. But I do have until the end of January 2024. So if, oh, I, if, if I manage my time right, I think I can make it happen. Uh, do you want to tell the listeners anything about this amazing book that's uh, that's upcoming? Yes. So basically, it is sort of structured on the style and content of Mike Munzer's podcast, Evolution of Horror. Um, as you mentioned, I... I contribute to that podcast. I do a, a segment on it called Wild About Horror, where uh, it's like a small pocket of the show um, where, in addition to what Mike discusses with his guests, the broader features of the on the episode about the films that they discuss, I actually just sort of zero in on the psychoanalytic features of those films. So my book is going to have 10 chapters and it'll be divided by sub-genres. So like, you know, slashers, vampires, ghosts, zombies, etc. And then within each chapter, there'll be, I'll be covering 10 titles and really focusing on the psychoanalytic aspect of them. It sounds fascinating. I cannot wait to get my hands on that book. <laughs> Um, now, Mr. Winnick, I understand that you took a film class with Mary recently. Is that how you came to know her work? Uh, no, but uh, Mary just took the words right out of my mouth. Um, so this is going to sound very repetitive, <laughs> but I first got to know Mary through her Wild About Horror segments on uh, The Evolution of Horror, which is one of my favorite podcasts and indeed an inspiration for this podcast. Um, Mary would come on, I think, with some Angelo Badalamenti music in the background. And in her <laughs> sultry, perfect for ASMR voice, give a Freudian analysis of whatever film Mike was discussing that week. And I believe, Mary, that you're you're doing these segments to this day. Yes, that's right. I'm actually working on the current series that Mike is producing on horror in the home. So yes. I've already done like Gaslight and Rear Window. I'm currently researching A Clockwork Orange. So it's an ongoing nice. process. The good thing is that these new ones that I'm producing, they're going to go right in my book. So <laughs> it's just, <laughs> so it's sort of like, it's, you know, ticking off a couple of boxes. Um, but Kill yeah, it's, all it, the birds yeah. with as few stones as possible, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. But Mike was an amazing collaborator to have because he always gave me, you know, like a free license to to interpret the films how I thought theoretically they were relevant. 
and you know he never really interfered with my process and he's always so encouraging and I think after a while I realized you know having produced a fair bunch of these segments for him you know you end up with all of these like little mini scripts and then you then I suddenly thought well maybe they could all be collected together in a book you know so it made sense to do it um, so, Mary, the first thing we like to ask our guests is, what is your history with the horror genre? And what is your favorite horror film? Well, I've loved the horror genre since I was a very small child. Uh, from the moment I became aware of cinema, I sort of almost instinctually knew about the horror genre. <laughs> I don't know how. It was just some weird... Um, knowledge that I somehow absorbed and I was that kid at the video store that was always lurking in the horror section somehow I mean I came from a very strict household but somehow I got this like free pass to (laughs) borrow any film I wanted from the video store I think because my parents sort of reasoned that if I'm borrowing movies from the video store that means I'm staying at home so it was there. It was maybe their way to keep me like kind of <laughs> at home. <laughs> but um, that's kind of. I just cut my teeth on that stuff. You know, uh, I I never was afraid. I never gave me nightmares. I I loved it. I watched everything. You know, from the super obscure to the mainstream. Even if I didn't understand it, I got a thrill discovering new films and. I think the key was just that I knew it was make-believe. So it, it just didn't like disturb me in, in any way. I, I found even now as an adult, I find watching horror films to be therapeutic and cathartic. Um, like I've done some EMDR therapy, which is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing therapy. It's a bit of a mm. mouthful. But, um, but through that therapy, I learned that the best way to overcome trauma is to fully like confront it and and reprocess it. And I really believe that the horror genre is doing that for us. It's sort of like the original EMDR. (laughs) It's sort of forcing us to not hide away from our fears and really confront them. And by doing so, we're reprocessing them and creating new neural pathways in our brain that make it that we're not afraid anymore. And um, all-time favorite movie is Black Swan. I really relate to it, you know, because also the character in that movie had a very strict mom. (laughs) Uh (laughs) But I also love Rosemary's Baby. I feel like that movie still, like, gives me the heebie-jeebies. It's so scary to me. And also I love Eraserhead. It's one of my faves. Why, thank you, Kay Kaiser. Um, Mr. Winnick, will you give us a brief, spoiler-free synopsis? Now, what if I said to you, Bradford, that I can't do a synopsis without spoiling this film? Well, as a wise man once said... Yes? Reality is not what it used to be. We begin in an asylum for the criminally insane... A man in a straitjacket is hauled into the facility and thrown into a padded cell. Visited by a psychiatrist, the man begins telling his story 
while acknowledging that something awful is happening in the outside world. We flash back. Renowned horror writer Sutter Kane has disappeared. Seeking to locate him and collect Kane's new novel, the aptly titled In the Mouth of Madness, the head of Arcane Publishing, Jackson Harglow, hires crack insurance investigator John Trent, a man with a nose for frauds and whose skepticism seemingly knows no bounds. Trent has already run into a spot of trouble. After reading a couple chapters of Kane's latest, Kane's agent becomes an axe-wielding maniac who crashes through the window of a local cafe where Trent is dining. The why, for now, is left unexplained. But as we learn, Kane's novels have a strange, disorienting effect on its, quote, less stable readers. Soon, Trent and Kane's editor, Linda Stiles, head to Hobbs and New Hampshire, where they infer Kane is living. Trent and Stiles discover a place that seems almost too quaint to be real, and almost immediately, a terrible secret that upends Trent's life as he knows it and has major repercussions for Sutter Kane fans worldwide. And there you have it. Uh, Eric, why don't we just tell everyone who made this movie? Yes, okay. This film was directed by one John Carpenter. Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, we did cover Carpenter a few episodes ago when we reviewed The Thing with Suzanne Kiley. Uh, Carpenter is also known for a little picture we like to call Halloween, as well as The Fog, Escape from New York, Christine, Starman, Prince of Darkness, They Live, and on and on and on. And you might say this film is late-stage Carpenter, given he only directed five films after this, concluding with 2010's The Ward. And since we covered Carpenter in our episode on The Thing, I was wondering if we could talk a bit about this phase of his career. Uh, before In the Mouth of Madness, Carpenter directed Memoirs of an Invisible Man, a comedy with Chevy Chase. And right after this film, he stayed with the creepy children thing, uh, with Village of the Damned. Um, I'm wondering if either of you would care to share some thoughts about Carpenter at this phase of his career. Mary? Well, I mean, I think that in this particular phase, we're seeing more of a focus in Carpenter on thought experiments mm. and kind of like philosophical predicaments uh, where... You're, it's sort of like bending logic and questioning, I guess, the nature of, of the universe. Am I right in thinking that actually um, informally in the Mouth of Madness was the third installment in what Carpenter refers to as his so-called apocalypse trilogy preceded by The Thing and Prince of Darkness? Yes. And, you know, of course, Prince of Darkness, as Eric said, is sort of in this same period, right? I mean, it's not as late as this. What year is uh, Prince of Darkness? Was that? 1987. 87, yeah. You know, so, I mean, I think that, that, that Carpenter, as you sort of very accurately said, Mary, I think that, that there's a lot of thought experiment in Carpenter's films, both in the films and behind the films. Mm. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's great when, you know, I think maybe Prince of Darkness is the the sort of best example of that because it, it is literally about academics probing the supernatural. 
Right. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, there seems to be this interest in the effects of imparting knowledge or information and then kind of creating an external reality that then we sort of invest in. But then the horror lies in realizing that that reality that we assumed was so solid and reliable is actually more fluid. Like it's it's not so fixed, <laughs> and um, and and I think actually the, in in many ways in the mouth of madness and also they live play on this and 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 are great movies to study in in the you know in, in the current times. Like I feel like they're very topical because I do think you know with the nature of media the way it is today yes it's been argued before that you know there's alternative facts or fake news or whatever I mean, whatever trumpian you know analogy we want to use but there's there you know p- people want to insist that there are alternate realities happening all at once and so i feel like these movies are great for tapping into the horror element of realizing that there's so many different perceptions. Um, from my point of view, uh, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, Mr. Winnick, since you asked about it, uh, have you seen it, Eric? Uh, of course not. Um, have you seen it, Mary? I have. I remember it from when I was in high school. <laughs> yeah, I remember I remember seeing it when it came out. I think we were probably in our early teens, right? Yes. Uh, to me, it was like a silly comedy caper with some good special effects probably among the best special effects in any carpenter film but i mean it's not the most memorable in in his oeuvre um and village of the damned kind of looks great but not not my favorite carpenter by a long shot all right very good uh in the mouth of madness was not written by sutter kane as the film would have you believe but by one michael deluca who may be best known now as a studio executive. He's the former president of production at both New Line and DreamWorks. He also served as the chairman of MGM and currently serves as co-chairperson and CEO of Warner Brothers. But before this, he was a screenwriter, perhaps best known for this film, The Lawnmower Man and Freddy's Dead. The Final Nightmare. The film's motley cast includes Sam Neill as protagonist John Trent, Julie Carmen as editor Linda Stiles, Jürgen Prochnow as the aforementioned Sutter Kane, the great David Warner as psychiatrist slash framing device Dr. Wren, a mincing John Glover as the aptly named Saperstein, uh, the delightful Francis Bay as Mrs. Pickman, Bernie Casey as Robinson, uh, the esteemed Wilhelm von Homburg as Simon, and Charlton Let My People Go Heston as book publisher Jackson Harglow. Now, like all good American films and TV shows, this was shot in Mary Wilde's homeland of Canada, specifically Markham, Ontario, which is where you'll find the real-life Black Church seen in the film. It's actually known as the Cathedral of the Transfiguration. And let me tell you, if I ever come across that place, I will transfigure myself the hell out of there. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's time for Math Club and Debate Society. 
the portion of our show where we talk about numbers, whether they add up, and then we tell you what the critics thought. In the Mouth of Madness was released on February 5th, 1995, featuring a budget of $8 million. It barely made its money back, grossing only $9 million worldwide. Shocking, considering how close it opened to Valentine's Day. Yes. Our boy Roger Ebert was not a fan of this film, mistakenly calling Hobbs End Hobbs Corner and claiming <laughs> the movie does what no horror movie can afford to do, which is to play tennis without a net. Stories like this need rules. It's not enough to send the beleaguered hero on a roller coaster ride through shocking images. One wonders how In the Mouth of Madness might have turned out if the script had contained even a little more wit and ambition. Womp womp, Rod. Womp womp. <laughs> um, Destin Howe in the Washington Post was slightly less complimentary, writing, quote, the American Republic is in peril, as usual, and it's going to take a really bad movie to save it. This is an uninvolving, abysmally scripted horror picture, a bewildering, boring assembly of rock video surreal nightmare sequences with more repetitive episodes than Groundhog Day. I said with more repetitive episodes than, oh, never mind, just consider yourself warned. Ending on a slightly more complimentary note is the New York Times' Janet Maslin. Yes, that Janet Maslin, who said, In the Mouth of Madness has enough menace and novelty to please fans of Mr. Carpenter's horror films without the wider interest of an enchanting parable like Starman. Still, this is a film with the temerity to think big, if only for the magnitude of the wickedness it invokes. Nothing less than an evil older than mankind and wider than the known universe must be reckoned with before this cautionary tale is over. And now's our opportunity to ask the professor, the weekly segment in which we get to ask questions of he who assigned the film, which in this case, and every case, is me. Uh, but before we get started, I just want to confirm, Mary, unlike Eric, you had, in fact, seen this film before. Yes, I had. Okay, great. So now please inform us and our listening audience, Professor, why you chose this film for the Scare You curriculum. Uh, I chose this film because I think it's a pretty straightforward story, minus its obviously strange underpinnings for a film whose aim is to destabilize its protagonist and, by extension, its audience. I think it's a creepy, underrated gem of a horror movie. And those always tend to be my favorites, especially with filmmakers like John Carpenter. I've always loved In the Math of Madness. I've always loved Prince of Darkness. And I also think that it has a place in the through line of our Scare You syllabus, um, both in films like The Thing, in which Carpenter first starts to address ideas of cosmic Lovecraftian horror, even though they're differently expressed in In the Mouth of Madness, and also in films like I, Madman and Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, in which the monsters that populate works of fiction and literature step off the page and into reality, or something like reality. 
It's set up from the start like a Lovecraft story with what would appear to be an unreliable, by virtue of insanity, narrator whose flashback would seem to comprise the bulk of the storytelling. But it is specifically this unreliability, which we are sort of led to expect from him, which throws, I think, all manner of doubt onto easily interpreting what's real versus what isn't. What is real? Is Trent, strictly speaking, real? And reality is a pretty hefty topic with regard to this film, I think, which functions on a deeply meta level. And unlike other films we've seen, um, which I have described as opening out and out and out to become larger stories and more complex studies, In the Mouth of Madness kind of collapses and coils onto itself to the point that multiple realities or unrealities or surrealities seem to be rubbing up against one another. And it becomes progressively more hypnotic and kaleidoscopic. And I think it's there that questions arise about these ideas of reality versus unreality, objectivity, sanity versus insanity. And frankly, whose perspective is coloring our perception of the world of the story? And I think even before we get plunged into the strange little town of Hobbes End, uh, which I think is, is peopled with unusual character actors turning in fantastic performances. Uh, We did not yet mention a young, nubile, young Hayden Christensen as the paper boy. Um, I I think the cast is objectively great. You know, Sam Neill was fresh from Jurassic Park when this thing was made. John Glover, by the way, Eric, his character, Dr. Saperstein, that is the name of Mia Farrow's obstetrician in Rosemary's Baby. And and it has Charlton Heston, and we love David Warner. And, of course, Jürgen Prochnow is Sutter Kane. And I think Kane, as much as he's inspired by Stephen King and the sort of fictional New England locations in which the King characters get to play, he almost makes me think of the character of Claire Zakanasian in Durenmott's The Visit in a very specific sense. Because... He's seemingly taking roost in his haunted little town and exacting some kind of punishment on the people who live there and then in the broader world. And it makes me wonder if Cain is causality or channel for something coming from a deep, dark place. Um, And I also really appreciate its use of liminal spaces, both internal and external, um, I think when Trent and Styles are driving at night and they're in that sort of, they're, they're enveloped in that black void, um, you know, when they encounter the boy riding the bike, it's in a, in, in a pure black vacuum. And this is something that we've seen in the work of William Castle. This is something we've seen in films like Insidious. And I think there's something to be said for some of the narratives taking place in a psychologically liminal space. And I'm not going to say much about that because Mary is the 
the analytic expert. <laughs> um, but I also think that the concept of time and the events that transpire in this narrative would kind of seem to defy our logical understanding of the linearity of time and the concepts of past and present and future. And I think whatever happens to Trent in this story, which of course begins by his just simply brushing up against Sutter Kane's world, we have to understand that he's either fabricating the bulk of the story that he's relating or the things that he's experiencing in objective reality are also being experienced by styles. But at the end of the day, it's like, is it real? Is it a folia duh? I don't know. I mean, that's really well put. And there's so much richness to what you've just said. I mean, I wonder whether the making of In the Mouth of Madness might have also been influenced by so much kind of like reactionary um, rhetoric in the culture, probably in those years, you know, in the 80s, where, I mean, this is something that keeps coming back. It's a sort of a cyclical thing in the culture, but you do sometimes hear about, I guess, warnings that certain works of art can influence people in a negative way, that watching violent movies causes spectators to commit violence, satanic panic kind of thinking, you know, that somehow the the artifacts of, of culture is able to, I don't know, like sow the seed of, of derangement in the consumer. And... I can't help but see this, you know, in in this film, maybe on some level, this film is also functioning as actually quite a complex response to that accusation, you know? I I mean, I'm of the belief that a good work of art, if it is effective in, in what it sets out to do, will actually create some type of madness in in this in the consumer. Um, not a madness that is then debilitating and then causes harm, but rather suspension of disbelief, you know, that we enter and are fully immersed in the world created by the artist. In this case, the author of these books, Sutter Kane. My view is that Carpenter is engaging with suspension of disbelief almost like a little bit tongue in cheek because <laughs> he's sort of creating the worst case scenario that the masses are, you know, reading this guy's book and they're all going nuts and, and, you know, everything is turning into chaos in society that somehow this book has some sort of like harmful effect on society. And so it's sort of playing on that level a little bit, but I think more, more interestingly, it's, it's making the case that Sutter Kane is such a good artist that he's able to actually like strip away the reliance of the reader on what they believe their reality is so that they fully enter these worlds taking for granted like this new created image uh, and narrative and they are in suspension of disbelief and that this suspension of disbelief is actually like a an ideal condition that the artist would want to, to, to pass on, like as some kind of magic, you know, 
that we are just for the duration of the t- the time that we're engaging with that work of art that we are kind of mad we're sort of delusional we think we're in that world we're really not and i i i i think that that's a good thing that's like a that should be the measure that should be the gold standard of works of art like do they achieve suspension of disbelief so there is a degree of horror within that like it is it, it's sort of traumatic in a way but I think that John Carpenter is able to show the trauma and the, the, the frightening aspect, but also convey and sell to us like the beauty of it as well, That's, that it is sort of enchanting. <laughs> well, would you look at that? It's the fire drill. Everyone, please leave the church single file. Do not head into any back rooms, do not get locked in the confessional, and should you choose to listen further and you have not seen the film. Why are you even listening to this? That's right, it's time for Study Hall, the portion of the show in which we talk about the moments, scenes, or aspects that made this such an indelible film or not. We'll be breaking this section up into two segments, honor roll, i.e. what worked, and detention i.e. what didn't work. But before we get into it, I have to ask you both, just to establish where we are on the playing field, please just give me a basic yes or no response. Did you like this film? Mary? Yes, I did. Eric? Maybe? You know, I'm, I'm inclined to accept that on this one. All right, so let's get into it. On a roll first... Round Robin style, we'll each name three scenes or aspects or attributes that worked best for us, and then we'll hand out detention slips. Mary, why don't you go first? What is your first nomination for the honor roll? Well, I thought that the moving painting in the hotel lobby was especially fascinating and uncanny, and yeah, it just really stood out to me. All right. Mr. Winnick. That's a great one. Um, you know, this film is actually much funnier than I was initially <laughs> willing to give it credit for. Um, the references to Stephen King are fantastic. Uh, I love how the names even sound alike, um, you know, syllable wise, Sutter Kane, Stephen King. King lives in Maine. Kane lives in bordering New Hampshire. King's books are set in Derry or Castle Rock. Canes are set in Hobbs End. Um, <laughs> at this point, all of his books are being translated into 18 languages and released as films, which of course Kings also were at that time. DeLuca and Carpenter were clearly having fun with the idea of uh, a writer's work having such a powerful hold over its audience that they start acting like lunatics. Um, but I think there's also a message for those who feel that the books and movies can cause this kind of violence and seek to ban this kind of media. Um, And I do feel like this film is kind of taking the piss out of those people as it were, sort of like the sort of like the tipper gores of the world. Bringing it slam bang into the present reality in America in 2023. You could say (laughs) that. You could say that. Yeah. How about you, sir? Well, you know, I think, I'm I'm pretty specific in my honor roll for this. Usually I, I tend to go a little broad. But, um, you know, I think jumping off of something that you were just talking about, I think when we get to see 
the first moment of of kind of um insanity injecting itself into the storyline is when a man who we later learn was Kane's former agent is seen walking across the street out of a bookstore uh, with an axe, which he slams through the glass while Sam Neill is sitting there uh, with Bernie having breakfast. And I think the setup of it is great. I think it kicks off the story in a really explosive way. Um, and I just think it, it's sort of Carpenter crafting a visual image the best way that he knows how. The guy coming across the street, sort of out of focus initially. Yeah. And then coming into focus with the axe is one of the most effective <laughs> uh, images in the film. And I actually have to agree with that. I thought that was very effective. Yeah. And very menacing. I don't know if you noticed, but the building that the man walks out of. Oh, don't say it. Don't say it. Don't say it. Oh, but I want to. Okay, I'll let you say it. No, go say it. It so wants to be New York, this film, that it has the guy walk out of a building with a six degrees of separation poster on one side. From Lincoln Center. And on the other side, The Substance of Fire by John Robin Bates. You know, which I'm not sure. I'm sure they were playing at that time. But it, but it, it was. It's just so funny that it's like two shows by writers that we know from the theater. Yeah, and it's so not New York. But at the same time, it's like it thinks that just by putting these posters on either side of the door, like it can conjure up New York. So yes. I, I just, I kind of that, like that. That's I such great hate, trivia. You know, well, I kind of hate it at the same time. You know, because it's like, because yeah. everything is filmed in Canada, so it's just like. Come on, guys. You could try a little bit harder than that. I'm so glad you picked up on that detail, Eric. Uh, I really am. How could I not? It's so great. Yeah. All right. So let's go back to Mary. Mary. Mary for your second honor roll. Well, I chose the bit of kind of dialogue or confrontation between John Trent and Sutter Kane towards the end of the film where... John says, I am not a piece of fiction. And Kane says, I think, therefore you are. Right. <laughs> it's just so good. Um, it's sort of then followed by that incredible shot of that corridor. And Kane is like tearing away at, him, at himself like a page in a book. Yes. It's yeah. so good. It's so good. And I suspect maybe you guys have also picked this one. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Um I mean, I guess we'll find out, right, as we keep going. Listen, I always come up with extras so that just in case somebody else steals one of mine, I got a couple of others. But Oh, really? Because I'm always willing to, like, as you know, always willing to second the emotion of somebody's (laughs) honor roll or detention pick. I Um, second that emotion. I second that emotion. All right, uh, Eric. um, Well, I mean, did did that count as your number two, the Lincoln Center Theater poster for six degrees of separation? No, that was just in ref. That was a reaction to your talking about the guy with the axe. Yeah, Um, hit us up with number two, Mister. Okay, Sam Neil. Sam fucking Neil. Trent is not a likable character. He hits on Linda within minutes of meeting her. He has an extremely high opinion of his ability to tell truth from reality. And even as everything around him is going to shit, he still thinks it's part of a prank. Um, 
I have to say Neil is a fascinating actor to me. And I don't think I would have felt this before I saw him in Possession, um, which is a, a performance that, as Mary knows, Neil completely and totally commits himself to. And he gives a performance that doesn't exactly match Isabel at Johnny's, but is really quite good. And since then, I've sort of seen him as an actor willing to, quote, take chances and not as Dr. Alan Grant from Jurassic Park, which I think is how most people see him now. Um, so props to Sam Neill for for really going for it in this film. Do you, I mean, Mary, I mean, you you are such a fan of Possession. I, I Honestly, before I saw that, I, I only saw that film recently. But I was like, wow, Sam Neill, he's like a guy who wants to dive into the deep end. Yeah, 100%. He really is very committed as an actor. Like he fully embraces the assignment. Yeah. Um, and and you're so right. His range is wonderful. Like he's able to do, you know, horror films. Um, so good in Event Horizon. I mean, Wow. Uh, it really blew me away in that. Yes. Uh, but and of course, possession. He, he's he's really mesmerizing. Yeah. It's it's really like a tough job to yeah. act in possession alongside yes. what Isabella Johnny is doing. I yes. Mean, she, she she's sort of like a a miracle in that movie in, in terms yes. of what she's achieving. Oh. It's a pretty tough gig acting alongside someone like that and really standing out and having your own quality and uniqueness that you bring to the table. So yeah, he's an extraordinary actor. And then to, to do all of that and still appeal to mainstream audiences right? and, you know, be in a normie movie like Jurassic Park. I mean, it's, it's quite something. <laughs> all right. Um, Mr. Lorick on a roll number two, would you please? Oh, I, th- I think it has to be just seeing the, the scene in which Trent and Mrs. Pickman are oh. interacting at the, the reception desk at the inn oh. uh, uh, until we pan down to see oh, that her, God. her naked husband is oh. cuffed to her ankle <laughs> behind the counter. Yeah, It's just so fantastic. And of course, um, oh God, what is her name? The actress who plays... Frances Bay. Frances Bay who plays Mrs. Pickman is, is just giving the most perfectly modulated and utterly unhinged performance. Yeah. She's got that kind of nightmarish quality about her. (laughs) (laughs) Clueless nightmare quality. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, guys, should we move on to number three? Yeah. Are we we there already? Oh my God. We're there. We're there. Mary honor roll number three. Well, I had just had to pick the iconic movie theater scene and the way the film mm. just ends on John Trent watching this movie about <laughs> himself, apparently, and laughing. And I can't help but think that this is trying to impart a lesson in Albert Camus' ideas on absurdism, you know, and that actually life is just kind of this strange paradox and it's sort of full of drudgery and sham and repetition actually and um, the best cure for this in terms of our perception and our outlook to life is to just laugh it off yep (laughs) eric do you have a third honor roll mention um now look guys i'm not a lovecraft scholar 
But I have seen enough films in the last few years <laughs> to actually pick up on some of the references here. So, you know. Tease them out for us, Win. I'm going to try. I mean, listen, I'm only going to scratch the surface here, but... Um, So here's what I picked up. The title, first of all, of this film is a nod to Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. Yes. The Pickman Hotel seems to be named for... uh, Pickman's model. Pickman's model, Lovecraft's 1927 story, which was also dramatized in Cabinet of Curiosities, uh, the Del Toro uh, anthology on Netflix. The Hobbs End Horror feels like it could be inspired by the Dunwich Horror, again, syllables. The Passage that Styles reads from In the Mouth of Madness towards the end stared into the illimitable gulf of the unknown, the Stygian world yawning yes. blackly beyond. Feels like it could have been, you know, torn from the pages of a Lovecraft novel. Lifted directly, yes. Yeah, yeah. And there are certainly a lot of many tentacled creatures in this. So as homage, I think this film acquits itself pretty well. And I mean, you can see aesthetically, functionally, a strong tie, I think, to the look and feel of the creatures in the thing. Yes. In fact, one scene in particular when she's in the bathroom. And Styles, yeah. Styles. Is in the, and, and there are some tentacles that come under the door. It feels very much like something from the defibrillator the scene. Yeah. 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 I mean, I as I watch it, I find myself wondering and, and sometimes sort of aloud to myself, you know, uh, did Carpenter just say to his team, well, this is how we did it on the thing. Do that again. <laughs> just do it again. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but I do think also um, seeing Mrs. Pickman in silhouette with sort of big slimy tentacles oh, erupting yeah. out of her is also great. Oh, yeah. And and she's still handcuffed to something. I, I didn't know if that was like her husband had morphed into this thing or what, but that definitely felt like very Lovecraftian. Um, Mr. Lorick, honor roll number three. How about it? You know, it's a small thing, and I don't know that it was sufficiently sort of earned, but I appreciate, uh, I appreciate watching Trent make the connection between or among the covers of Sutter Kane's paperbacks. Uh, and when he tears them apart and makes that sort of extra special interactive map. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I just, I, I, I love that moment. I love those kinds of yes, um, you do. light bulb experiences in a good scary movie. What would have made it even better? Well, I mean, frankly, if he'd spent some time at, I don't know, a library or a... <laughs> A newspaper archive, someplace that they might have a microfiche machine. I seriously, you know, it was a very di- scanner. It was a very DIY investigation. If you, I, I wish he had just gone to the library and looked it up on on microfilm. Detention after school, both of you, you'll receive failing grades on this test. Seriously? Excuse me. You can take that language straight to detention. Anyone else? Motherfucker. Okay, fine. Detention for you too, Mr. Barber. Just perfect. Thank you, Sophia Lillis. Okay, now as playwright Ernie Joslovitz used to put it, let's make that subtle turn and discuss what in this film deserves the dreaded detention slips. 
Again, Mary, as our guest, why don't you start us off? What is the first aspect of this film that you think deserves detention? Well, I mean, this is just my opinion, and I hope that I don't offend either of you or your listeners by making this complaint. Oh, don't worry about me. <laughs> we live for your opinion. Ms. Yes, <laughs> please. Well, since you ask, um, I had to say that what sort of irritated me the most about this movie, unfortunately, was Julie Carmen's performance as Lydia Stiles. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, I mean, the performance... Yes. The performance is passable, passable, arguably, when she simply appears on the screen because she's very cinegenic and she's got great hair, love the makeup, the costume's great. But the line delivery is pretty mm. bad, um, especially inside the hotel room when she's like explaining their predicament and it's just like, oh, make it stop. <sighs> yeah, when she gets what? thrown on the bed, she's like, I, she's the, the, her line delivery is so strange. She's you know, she's like, Etenme, Etenme. <laughs> What's going on there? Exactly. I, I mean, I just find myself watching her and wondering to myself, is she supposed to be a new Adrian Barbeau? It, mm. what, is, what is Carpenter doing by having cast this actor in this role? Because I'm not sure that she's bringing a lot to it that, that, I find particularly compelling. No. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. I was just going to say, I, I I, almost put Julie Carmen in my detention slips, but as I only have three, um, I decided to let someone else do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm relieved to hear that. Thanks, Mary. You know, I mean, it's like, is she supposed to be a star? Is she supposed to? No, she didn't didn't really go on to do anything after that. That's what I'm saying. I mean, I find it so unusual in this film that has Sam Neill, again, I mean, I don't know how many times I need to say it, hot off of Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it just seems like we might have had a more sort of compelling female lead. If any listeners out there can elucidate what Julie Carmen is doing in this film, please feel free. Scareyoupod at gmail.com. Yes. Enlighten me as well, please. Yes. And we'll pass it along to Mary. You know, Bradford, I'm, you know, because you always go third in these things. Why don't you go second? What is your first attention slip? Who is Sutter Kane? He's almost an afterthought. He's a, He's a vehicle for a story without being a character in a story. And I just feel like he's woefully absent and and really underdeveloped. And I would like to have come away from the story, from the experience of seeing the film, knowing more about him, why he's doing what he's doing, why he's taken up residence in Hobbs End, if he has taken up residence in Hobbs End. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's sort of absent until he isn't and then gone in a in a heartbeat. And I think for this story there should be some more dramaturgy perhaps surrounding Sutter Kane. I don't have anything to say about that, but it is interesting. Um yeah, I you know, uh, I've always wondered about movies of this time, you know, the late 80s and early 90s that can be considered sort of B movies 
for their time. You know, movies that are really just meant to be kind of schlocky and entertaining with sort of subpar to par FX. I mean, I, I honestly, I, I know you really like this, Mary, but I thought that Kane tearing himself apart like a book was kind of woefully inadequate. Um, <laughs> and as I mentioned in my first honor roll, there, there are elements that elevate this above simple sort of standard B picture silliness. Um, there is definitely a kind of sloppiness to this film that for me counteracts whatever messages Carpenter and DeLuca may have had. I mean, it's not enough for the film to be about a book that drives people crazy. It becomes this kind of genre mashup that throws in sort of Lovecraftian monsters, freaky kids attacking Dobermans or Rottweilers, I don't know which, and even zombies. So I'm giving a detention slip to the sort of kitchen sink aspect of the Mm. writing and filmmaking here. All right, Mary, moving back to you. Well, I mean, it's like a small gripe, but I felt that it stood out as something that annoyed me Um, quite early on in the movie. There's like this dream sequence when we see like John Trent initially engaging with the books of Sutter Kane. And in his dream, there's like a group of axe wielding freaks. <laughs> and-, <laughs> and Mary, just to be really clear, this is at the beginning before he's gone to Hobbs End. Exactly. Right? Okay. Exactly. Yes. And in that sort of strange, I guess, dream state, he's like, picturing these people with with axes and one of them says something like he sees you yeah (laughs) and then they start chopping off body parts and a woman eats a cut off piece of human flesh yeah um i don't know i just found that scene very corny like i don't know if it's it's just the topography of it maybe it just was thrown in to appeal to kind of that style of like schlocky 80s horror fans, you know? This is exactly what I mean. I mean, there are moments mm. of this film that are pure schlock. And right. that as as interesting as this film wants to be or thinks it is, it just keeps coming back to these moments that are just like, <laughs> ugh. Yeah, no, I mean, it's that very sort of mercenary conversation where if we if we were to put side by side by side by side a handful of genre films from the same period, we would see so many sort of stylistic and narrative choices that span all of those offerings. Yeah. You know, I mean, we would see the same film stock. We would see the same kinds of shots. We would see, you know, a similar approach to dealing with the narrative. Um, I'm Madman. So I'm Madman, exactly. And I think that, you know, the, the, the sort of context in which we're experiencing these things is as important as what's actually happening in the film itself. Does that make the film any better? Is it? Are we supposed to view it through a different lens? Well, I mean, what is the lens through which you would view, um, you know, the old dark house or the black cat? I mean, I would see them as innovative for their time. I mean, I would see them as ahead of their time, actually, in some respects, because they didn't have special effects you know, nearly on a level that we have today or that they had in 1995. Um, So they were really just drawing horror from the most basic elements. But along those lines, you know, something made in 1995 is at a distinct disadvantage because it's right before 
were, you know, I mean, again, not to talk about Jurassic Park exclusively throughout this podcast, but, you know, <laughs> new new bars were being set in terms of special effects. Yes. Just around this film. So That's you right. could see something that was made with more attention to detail that feels like a much newer, or more contemporary or more successfully executed film. This one just suffers from being made at the time it was made in terms of effects, I think. I mean, this is pure speculation, but I can't help but imagine like there must have been someone there from the studio saying, hey, why don't you throw in like, you know, yeah. we've got the budget for this additional thing you could do. Just, you know, a little bit of like effects filler or something. And then it's sort of like clutters the film. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I keep comparing In the Mouth of Madness to this kind of parallel version of it in my mind that is much more stripped down Mm -hmm. and really drilling in on the concept rather than the schlock. Yes. And the themes. You know, yeah, and the themes, exactly. And I can't help but think like, oh man, I would have loved to have seen the version mine in my head. But of course that's just pure, you know, that's just pure fantasy. Yeah. (laughs) Ari Aster's in the mouth of madness. Oh my god. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Well, I mean yes. it makes you wonder like when when you hear that Jordan Peele is remaking, you know, The People Under the Stairs, you know, right. there's a film that that didn't have great special effects and it makes you wonder like so what's Peele going to do? Is he going to lean into special effects or is he going to lean into the themes and I hope it's the latter. Because the themes are really interesting in that film, Bradford. Don't you agree? I agree 100%. But also in The People Under the Stairs, we're not dealing with having to represent some cosmic otherness. No, that's true. You know? And I mean, to Mary's point, when when some studio exec came up and said, hey, kid, you hear about this new thing called green screen? I mean... (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I think there's a difference between the naivete of a puppet... And the technical shortcomings of like blue screen technology or claymation where it's appropriate. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I guess Bradford you're it's, it's over to you for detention number two. I'm apprehensive about mentioning this because Mary, I hope we're still friends when I'm done. Oh no. I think that the changing painting is a nice metaphor for questioning the reality of what we're experiencing. But it is the only visual metaphor of that kind in the entire film. It's been done better elsewhere. Mm. And I really just wish that DeLuca or Carpenter had pushed that idea in a more interesting direction. Detention number two. I think I'm going to need your help on this, uh, both of you. So the timeline is a little bit confusing to me. I think I I get it, but I'm not sure. Towards the beginning... As John visits the ransacked bookstore, a newscaster describes riots in eastern cities with reports of violence and, quote, barely coherent witnesses, all reporting having read Kane's latest novel, which at the time of this reporting is Hobbes and Horror. That doesn't quite match what Stiles says about the readers who just become disoriented. Now, when we see Trent in the alley, he peels back a little of the Hobbs End poster, but we don't see what's under it till later in the film, when it's revealed to be the movie poster for In the Mouth of Madness. So here's my question. 
are we meant to understand later that Hobbes and horror is not real? And the book mm-hmm. they have in fact been reading is In the Mouth of Madness, which is revealed later in the film to have already been released. Please set me straight on this. I mean, I, I actually don't know if I can. I feel like there's, <laughs> I th- it's very mysterious. I, I'm not mm. sure. Are the riots supposed to be just people kind of tearing apart the bookstores for Hobbes and horror? Or are they somehow anticipating the release of the next book? Is the title itself setting off riots? Like, what's going on? Well, there is like a collapsing of time with regard to In the Mouth of Madness, the book in the movie. Trent returns from Hobbes End. He's in Charlton Heston's office. Yes. And Heston says, you brought me the manuscript back seven months ago. The movie is coming out next month. Right, exactly. Like it's already been released. Yeah. So that's why I was like, are they responding to In the Mouth of Madness as opposed to Hobbes and Horror? If so, why don't we see In the Mouth of Madness on bookshelves? Because the all the posters we see are for Hobbes and Horror at that point. So what have they read that has caused them to go into this, you know, mayhem? Well, that's a great question. <laughs> that's just a great question you know something i just this is why i have the two of you to help me out first time watcher do me a solid here guys mary what what do you think i mean i just think it's down to the fact that they've been effectively like mesmerized by the author yes and it's like this process of being completely pulled into that world created by Sutter Kane. And they're just in the midst of suspension of disbelief. They can no longer tell, you know, the boundaries of fantasy and reality. And Mm. it's maddening. It's utterly maddening, guys. (laughs) Right. Anyway, um, let's move back to, uh, I think, Mary's third detention slip. Yes, I do have a third one, and it's so minor. Um, I'm almost even questioning, why do I even have this on here? But it was a genuine, like, irritation. Give it a go. It's literally just when John Trent goes to meet um, the publisher, um, and then he tries to, like, light a smoke, and he's asked to put it out. Yes. My Linda, right? She puts yes, it in the, in the mug that says "in the in the mouth of madness." In the mouth, of madness, in the mouth yeah, you know. Yeah. And I, I was like, "Damn it! Like, let the man have his smoke." You know, <laughs> <laughs> that is now, totally legitimate. All right, detention number two. Yes, for me, detention number two. Indeed. Well, we are still talking about in the mouth of madness, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not talking about the other movie that John Glover is in while he's supposed to be in In the Mouth of Madness. Oh he, yeah. He's in literally a totally different movie it's than true. anyone it's true. else in the movie. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. And I am a fan of John Glover's work. I have love hung John out Glover. with John Glover. Yep. But he's not in the same movie as the rest of the cast. No. So that is just a niggling little detail for detention, but it bugs me. All right. So to bring us home, here is uh, my third detention slip. And again, another question for the two of you. 
who is the bike rider that they keep coming across when driving <laughs> in and out of town? The only explanation I could Christensen. No, that's the paper boy. The only explanation I could come up with is that this is some kind of harbinger of doom. Now, I don't quite get how he was connected, how he's connected to the main plot, other than the fact that he's kind of this indestructible force who keeps coming back. And the playing cards in the spokes of the wheels, like what, what is that about? Now, I wouldn't even ask about this character, except that he is pretty prominently placed in the film, both at the beginning and the end. So what's going on? Who is the bike rider? And what's that all about? Eric, harbingers have a critical role in the horror I agree. Genre. I agree. But what is that all this character is? I mean, that's a good way of putting it, because I was also thinking of him as really book ending mm. that sequence where they're sort of immersed in the book. Yeah. What the only difference being is, is that when in this sort of latter part, when we see him on the road, Linda Stiles is riding with him on the bike. Am I right in thinking that? Yes. She, yes. I mean, they encounter the bike rider. And then after she does her her jangly yeah. man, you yeah. know the thing, yes. the thing bit, then she does right off with him on the bike. She, yes. Yeah, right. Which I have to think, like going off what you just said, Eric. Um, I like how you're sort of suggesting that he's demarcating almost yeah. the kind of the topography of where that madness is really taking place, right? And. The fact that the editor then rides along with the guy on the bike makes me think that maybe it's like an analogy for the fact that like the reader can engage and disengage with Mm. the the sort of uh, immersive aspect of the art. But the editor has to stay back there a bit longer. (laughs) (laughs) I also want to point out that the guy on the bike looked a little bit like Doc Brown. But yes, he did. I, I think the guy on the bike actually looks a lot like John Carpenter. Yes. Um, I, I think the bike rider and I always understood that the paper boy was the boy on the bike that they encounter earlier who turns into John Carpenter. Um, <laughs> but I think much like the painting, that character is kind of a visual representation of what is happening with regard to time and space and these uh, concepts of past and present and future right collapsing on themselves because we have to understand that we watched a boy riding toward Hobbs end and then moments later we're watching a boy with John Carpenter's head and face riding away from Hobbs end and can never sort of escape. I think he says they won't let me go or something like that. Ah, okay. And so, you know, I mean, it it makes me wonder, okay, well, what in Hobbs end or what in the experience of getting to or coming from Hobbs end turns a child into an elderly man? And I think that starts to tease out what we're going to experience once Trent and Stiles actually get there. All right. Before we bring it on home with our superlatives, let's take a quick break for recess. Get some air into our lungs, run around a little bit, maybe have a snack or two. Mary, growing up in the snowy white north, did you have a favorite school time snack? 
I mean, my favorite ever was Kid Cats. <laughs> oh. I love a Kid Cat. All right, so let's take that break and come back for the superlatives. As far as everyone's concerned, you're the most popular girl in your school. And the fact that you hang with Dee and I, well, speaks very highly of you. Well, he's very popular, Ed. Cools, nerds, your side, my side. Man, it's all bullshit. It's just tough enough to be yourself. So, is this your first time out here? Yeah. I don't think I'm very popular out here either. Hey, I met you. You are not cool. There are people I work with and our job is being popular and shit. We want to invite you to have lunch with us every day for the rest of the week. Oh, it's okay. Coolness. So we'll see you tomorrow. It is time now to hand out our superlatives, those annoying popularity awards in every high school yearbook, like best looking, best dressed, and most likely to succeed. Only with us, it's things like character that most deserve to die. So to start us off, let's do our first award, the Gaspar Noe Award for Most Disturbing Scene, named for, of course, Gaspar Noe, director of such films as Irreversible, Love 3D, Luxeterna, Luxeterna, <laughs> Enter the Void, Climax, and Vortex. So, this is the most disturbing scene. Uh, I'm going to ask Bradford to start us off with this. Well, I, it could be when Styles and Trent are approaching Hobbs End and they see the boy pedaling away from the direction they'd just seen him biking. And then suddenly he has the head of an elderly man who is John Carpenter. But <laughs> I, I think actually the most disturbing scene is watching Styles eat a full set of car keys and then get punched in the face by Trent. Oh, oh. yeah. Oh, it's, it's, it's so not cool on so many levels. It's very disturbing. Oh, it, I could not tell what was going on. I didn't. I didn't know if he was just reaching down her throat or what, no, or if she first. actually. No, but did she swallow them? Or yes. Did she just put them? Okay, because I didn't get. Okay, I don't know. All right. She she makes a meal out of the car keys, much like Brad Dourif often makes a meal out of a character. That's true, <laughs> and we'll get to that. We'll get to that in a minute. Mary, what do you have for the Gaspar Noe Award? Well, I mean, my pick is when Linda Styles appears from behind the car door and says, Kane has a job for you. And her body contorts all twisted oh, yeah. and bent out of shape. And she crab walks towards John Trent. I mean, actually, that kind of thing we, we even see practically in Climax, where people are like contorting and the dancers mm, look really yes. weird. Like they're doing some weird shapes with their bodies, very uncanny. And it freaked me out. When I first saw this movie, that... That scene really scared me, and I found it very disturbing. So yeah, it's a little bit Reagan McNeil. It's a little yes. bit the jangly man from jangly Scary man. Stories to Tell in the Dark. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, it is very um, disturbing. Um, I'm going to go with a scene that's been mentioned before by Mr. Lorick, and that's the scene in which we finally meet Mr. Pickman, uh, who <laughs> is attached by handcuffs to Mrs. Pickman's ankle and is lying on the floor naked behind the front desk of the hotel. 
Didn't see that one coming. And deeply that, disturbing. Deeply disturbing. <laughs> uh, which brings us to the Ellen Ripley Award for character that most deserved to live, but sadly does not. Named, of course, for Ellen Ripley, Sigourney Weaver's character in the Alien Cinematic Universe. Mary, would you like to start us off with uh, your Ellen Ripley Award for this film? I mean, the one that I chose, I feel like if you if you blinked, you you missed him. Um, <laughs> but I, towards the end of the film, when society's just gone to pot, everyone's lost their mind, and John Trent has just come back from this strange place. The, there's this poor young reader who was just minding his own business, enjoying oh, yes. his book, <laughs> and yes. he got a, he got an axe on the head. <laughs> Yeah, we see him earlier. He's the one who um, is in the bookstore uh, when John first walks in and it's been ransacked. So he is actually oh. appears twice in the film. He's another bookend character. Oh, well spotted. I didn't even realize he was there at the beginning. It's a good choice, though, for, for Ellen Ripley. Um, Bradford, who do you have? The paper boy. Oh, mm. come on. I'm glad to see he pulled through. <laughs> if he's real. If he's not real, then old Mr. Pickman. If he's mm. real. Okay. I have the character that most deserved to live, but does not. Um, and that would be Simon played by the exquisite Wilhelm von Homburg. Mm -hmm. Not to be confused with Jürgen Prochnow. He just wanted his kid back. You know, he just wanted Johnny boy. Yeah. And ultimately he lost Johnny boy. His daughter, I think did a number on him on his face. And then he shot himself. Viggy, Viggy. He's been a bad monkey. I got to <laughs> say, I did not realize that Wilhelm was Vigo the Carpathian until oh, right yeah. now. So thanks for thanks for enlightening me. Of course. Um, you know what? That, that brings us to the Michael Myers Award for character that most deserved to die. Mary, would you tell our listening audience who is Michael Myers? Well, Michael Myers is the character in Halloween, of course. Yes. Directed by John Carpenter. It is indeed. The is hero indeed. of Carpenter's yeah. Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> Bradford, who do you have for Michael Myers? I'm abstaining. No, you're not. I am. I'm not sure that anybody actually dies except for the reader and the agent. And maybe oh. Mr. Pigman. Oh. Okay. But again, I mean, this, this brings up all kinds of questions about... What is really happening here? And I'm not sure that any of the characters that he meets in Hobbs End are real. Yeah. I'm not sure that he's real. Uh, Mary? Well, I mean, I didn't expect to make this decision when I first saw your question shared with me. But I couldn't help but think that maybe you could argue that the character that I mentioned earlier, you know, for the Ellen Ripley Award, the, the poor innocent yes. reader who got an axe yes. on the head. But you could argue it both ways, that maybe he also deserved to die in the sense that he deserved to have his suspension of disbelief brought to an end, that maybe it was like a benevolent uh, thing for him oh, to get no, the axe on the head because it kind of wakes him back up into his own reality and he's no longer wow. just enslaved yeah. by this ongoing fantasy. That's a smart choice, Ms. Wild. <laughs> I like that. That's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I guess you could say Proc now, who's basically bringing on the apocalypse. Is that who that's you would just, say? 
no, it isn't. It's just too easy. <laughs> and he doesn't die. I'm going to give it to Jackson Harglow, played by the evil Charlton Heston, both on screen and in real life. And yes, I know he doesn't die either, but he's certainly but he worthy of to. the award. <laughs> <laughs> well, not only does he send Trent off on his mission, he also represents the worst of the publishing industry, willing to forego any kind of trouble, conflict, or global chaos just to make a fast and easy buck. He hasn't even read the books. He's an asshole. <laughs> that brings us to, of course, the Ken Russell Award for Most Baroque Screen Moment. I, we come to this award every week and I just get a little frisson of excitement because <laughs> I, I love talking about Ken Russell, who everybody will re recall as the contestant on Big Brother. <laughs> Who is, am I correct on this, Bradford? Yes. Big Brother UK, so yeah. deeply racist that he was yeah. voted out of the house on the first day, I think. And known yeah. for nothing else. I mean, he, he, he did make some movies. A few flicks, you might say. A few say. easy, naturalistic films. He dabbled. Like, like he dabbled. Lair of the White Worm, Salome's Last Dance. Whore, take whore. the money, whore. The money. Yeah, you know what? I I choose to remember Ken for such early uh, subtle films as Tommy and Lishtomania, the music the lovers, devils. And yeah. the devils, oh, the devils, <laughs> a film that Mary Wilde loves. Oh um, yes, I do loves that film, and in fact, because it's the Ken Russell Award. I would like Mary Wilde to go first. Thank you for the honor of letting me go first. I <laughs> am choosing to award this wonderful Ken Russell Award for Most Baroque Screen Moment to the location of the small town. There's almost like a folk horror element to it with shots of children mm. running in slow motion, a bloodied mm -hmm. axe, and this strange Byzantine church. <laughs> yes. And I don't know, it just makes me feel like that could have been Ken Russell's cameo directorial moment in <laughs> in the mouth of madness. All right. That could have that could have been something, yeah, something a little nod, maybe, an homage. <laughs> Ken Russell. Probably in the basement of the black Byzantine church. Mm. The the rip in the basement. Those were some big pages and some slimy monsters. It felt very over the top. And I have to almost agree with you there, Mr. Lorick, because my Ken Russell Award goes to the scene in which Styles enters the church, finds Kane typing away, finishing his book, and the way he kind of seduces her into sort of seeing this montage that includes a few frames from the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. We really can't decipher it, but which causes her to start bleeding from the eyes. And then slowly, as she puts her arms around him, this creature kind of grows out of the, out of his back that looks a little bit like a gremlin. And Don't get him wet. Don't feed him like, after midnight. She's like, don't feed him after <laughs> midnight. And she's got her arm, she's got her hands on it. And it's yep. just also, it's a little icky. She's That's sort of all. caressing his face as if it's Ugh. like the back of Sutter Kane's head. Yeah. Yes, yes. Anyway, 
disgusting. Which brings us to our final award for the night. The Brad Dourif Award for character that should or could have been played by Brad Dourif, named for the actor best known for the role of James Veneman, the, the Gemini, Gemini killer. killer in The Exorcist 3, as well as the voice of Chucky in the Child's Play franchise, and a few other things, a few other things. I'm going to go first on this. Just Take to start it away, Wayne. I'm going to continue my trend of giving an award to someone who should have been played by Dourif. In this case, I'm giving a second award to Jackson Harglow, unnecessarily played by the disgusting Charlton Heston. Um, (laughs) My hatred of Heston probably has something to do with this, but I think Dourif would have done a lot more with the character of the publisher uh, who sends Trent and Stiles off to their doom. If I had my way, I would have had... Good old Brad Dourif pry the role of Jackson Harglow from Charlton Heston's cold, dead <laughs> hands. Oh, chef's kiss. Well you done. Well Thank done, you. Mr. Winner. Mary, who do you have for the Brad Dourif Award? Uh, oh. You're a tough act to follow, Eric. But I gotta say, I did think, watching this movie... That the creepy bicycle man on the night road, mm. I think Brad Dourif would have brought more charisma, uh, more je ne sais quoi. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, more intrigue to this character, which actually, truthfully, I wish had been developed more as well. Mm-hmm. To which I say, great Scott! Um, <laughs> okay, Bradford Lurick, take us home. Well, I don't know if it's je ne sais quoi or just je ne sais pas, but <laughs> I, I think our man Brad would have done a bang-up job with Sutter Kane. I think it's exactly the kind of role that he would have sunk his teeth into. And, you know, maybe uh, an actor like Brad Dourif would have given us a little bit more development of Sutter Kane. Mm-hmm. But I also think that Dourif would have been great as the old New Yorker sitting next to Trent (laughs) on the bus, talking about how bodies were piled up three high on the Bowery in the Great Depression. I mean, come on. That would have been great. Just a little tiny... A soupçon of (laughs) Dourif. Definitely. Very good, sir. Very good. Thank you. All right. Well, and with that, we have arrived at our final segment of the night. The final exam. And this is the part where we give our final letter grade for the semester based on everything we've heard and seen about In the Mouth of Madness. Mary, would you like to go first? Well, I would have to give this film a B plus. It has a lot of remarkable features. It's very thought-provoking and it lingers on the mind, but there are just some things about it that actually stand in the way of its greatness and are end up being setbacks and prevented from being like an utter masterpiece. <laughs> um, and again, purely subjective. It's just competing with the version of this movie that's in my mind only. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and for that reason, I have to give it a B plus. All right. Mr. Winnick. Interesting. I, I would have said exactly the same thing as Mary. Um, and given it, it a, a D minus. Interesting film, some setbacks competing with the version in my mind, <laughs> but I'm giving it a C plus. 
Okay. All right. Bradford, what, what is your final letter grade for In I the am, Mouth of Madness? I am side by side with Mary Wilde. It mm. is a B plus, And it is for all of those same reasons that Mary has kind of just enumerated that I, I'm right there with her. You know, there are, mm. are problematic aspects to the filmmaking that impede on a really daring, fun concept. I do wish we could chat longer, but... I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you do, if you did, tell your friends, share our episodes on that series of pneumatic tubes called the internet, have a listening party and play some carpenters music, bring some (laughs) Kit Kats, and hey, maybe even subscribe. Oh, we've only just begun, Eric. Indeed, we have. Better yet, why don't you give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so we'll be easier for others to track down. Be sure to check out additional information on our Instagram account, in our Facebook group, or on our website, scareyoupod.com. Thanks again to our very special guest who is not even a little bit intimidating in real life. (laughs) Not at all. Mary Wild. Mary, if people want to find you and your work online, where can they do so? Well, you can follow me at Psychstar, that's P-S-Y-C-S-T-A-R on Twitter and Instagram. And I also produce exclusive content on Patreon and you can find me on patreon.com forward slash Mary Wild. Meanwhile, you can find me on Letterboxd and Instagram under the moniker EA Winnick. And you can find me at BradfordLorig.com. Our announcements were by Kay Kaiser, Sir Anthony Hopkins, Wyatt Olaf, and Sophia Lillis. Our theme music is by Edward Elgar and Sir Cubworth. Scare You is a production of Yarn Audio Works. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We will see you soon in the tiny, deserted New Hampshire town that we like to call Scare You. Ha ha ha!